Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, what I'm doing, I'm reviewing uh, episode 10 of Hulu's Castle Rock. There's a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to the finale of season one. There's a lot to parse out. But before I get into it, I want to read a couple of emails. Um, anyone listening, uh, feel free to write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, so up first, we have Kyle, who writes, and this is a spoiler for it. For the entirety of it, everyone, so just just be warned. I've been wondering this since I was about six years old and have um, only maybe or two Stephen King fans I've ever really met, and no one could definitively answer this. If the losers lose their memory after they defeat it, how do Ben and Bev explain how they met? When they meet people, is it just we've all been in love since we were 11, that's it, that's all we know, please don't know how we met. We don't know why we're in love. We just are. Please give me some insight. P.S. Thank you so much for the podcast as I'm rather stupid. So having someone like you explain the Dark Tower as I read along helps very much. Uh, thank you, Kyle. And don't put yourself down. Um, so the way that I see it is the the, the mind um, is a very capable um, organ that we have. And um, it will allow for some mental gymnastics. Um, and I believe that this happens um, with survivors of, of trauma and repressed memories. Um, the, the mind, I don't know if the mind will create totally fabricated memories um, that don't line up, but there's a way I believe that it has of sort of navigating around those particular bits so that you don't have to think about it too much. Um, you know, I don't remember um, specifics about when I first met people in my life you know I just kind of remember them being there around a, a general um, you know period of time but the, the when you try to like grab the the specifics it's it gets a little bit fuzzy so I don't know if that if that's the same but that I'm able to accept um, because I do know that you know Though we don't have supernatural means encroaching upon the real world, we do have instances in which the brain does um, create uh, coping mechanisms for trauma that has ex happened in the past, and it allows people to be able to function in the present um, with faulty memories. Okay, then we have Jeremy who writes, Hey, I just discovered your podcast. Not sure why it's taken me this long. I, too, obsess over King's works, especially anything that has ties to the Dark Tower series. I started with your episode on insomnia because, like you, I loved the book and could never figure out why a lot of people hated it. I couldn't believe how much I'd forgotten about it. One major plot point I'd completely forgotten about was Patrick Danville. Then I listened to your bonus episode on the court of the Crimson King. I wanted to provide a theory that I thought you might enjoy. Spoiler alerts, guys, for insomnia and all of the Dark Tower. Danville is supposed to save two people, one of which is vital to the survival of the Dark Tower. We all know that one is Roland. You questioned who the other would be and suggested Eddie, although Eddie is already... Spoiler alert. Eddie is already dead. Here's my theory. The other person Danville is meant to save is the Crimson King himself. He draws and erases the Crimson King, leaving only his eyes. His body is gone, but he's not dead. In this way, Roland can enter the tower, go through the doorway, and restart his journey and fulfill the Ka is the Wheel prophecy. Not sure what the right word is. 
Anyway, thought that you might find that thought interesting. At the end of the day, I like a couple loose ends. It allows a story to live on in your mind for just a little longer. I completely agree. The Bachman Books episode is next for me. It was the first book I read, and The Long Walk is still one of my all-time favorites. I had a version that still included Rage. My dad was an attorney and had it as an exhibit from a trial he participated in. He wouldn't give it to me, so I talked to my older sister into um, getting him to give it to her. I think I was 11 or 12 at this point. Keep up the great work, fellow constant reader. Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you for, for writing in. If you want to uh, write in uh, and, and send me an email, all you have to do is write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, guys, so here's what I'm going to do now. Um, I'm going to read uh, from decider.com Zach Dion's recap of episode 10 of Castle Rock Romans so that I have a basis upon which I can build my, or I have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. Okay, so Zach writes, let's treat chronology with the same reverence Castle Rock has and say screw it. Here's how we parted with the excellent characters and actors this anthology series may never show us again. Perpetual uncertainty is the hour's theme, often frustrating but totally on brand for a show that has walked the line between supernatural and earthly evils at every step. And of course, Stephen King is almost as known for bad endings as he is for his many strengths. Henry and the other Henry. Both Henry Deavers find themselves behind bars in a basement again only together. Our Henry is there to collect his son and winds up being interrogated about Odin Branch's murder. The kid will now call Dr. Henry to reinforce his patently true identity slash profession while keeping him creepy is there because his counterpart had the cops scoop him up at Harmony Hill Cemetery where he visited his own grave Deaver boy who in this world was born to heaven. Henry tries his best to deny Molly's revelation via Dr. Henry that there are other worlds than these. She told you everything, Dr. H asks, thinking they can finally do their forest trip. If the sound stops, I think I could be stuck here. As long as I'm here, things will get worse, people will die, I can't stop it, I'm not supposed to be here. And you didn't want any of this, Henry says, presenting Dr. H's soap figurine to silently say, you sure wanted the new warden dead just like the old one though. Dr. Henry looks awkwardly aside, his voice and body language when Henry and Molly doubt him do make him seem like the devil failing at his tricks, but we're not getting sucked down that road. Who are you? Henry A asks. Dr. H, same as you, a victim. Henry dismisses this, but perhaps it's just the latter portion. Henry learned to carve soap in that other castle rock from the Matthew who never adopted him, and he brought one back with him through the thinny slash door. Henry has independently remembered too many pieces of the story, thanks to Branch's filter and its schisma visions, to explain this all away with satanic mind tricks. Just too many logistical backflips for a fake story from Dr. Henry to be the t real takeaway. For the clincher, Henry asks Dr. H what his dad would have done in this other timeline if Ruth hadn't split. He would have killed her. He knew all about Alan and Mom. She told me after we left, he answers, citing the same Bible verse, Romans 6.23. Matthew told Henry along with his plan to get rid of Ruth. The Henrys are thrown into the same cell to make room for the Shawshank Khans, whose bus just clobbered the new warden. Dr. Henry entered her home and left a figurine modeled after her. Warden Lacey was right was her verdict. He's the fucking devil. Also, she mentioned chucking her predecessor under the metaphorical bus and was threatened the same treatment by her own boss after Zaleski's massacre, which ultimately led to the closure of Shawshank. Dr. H is a magnet for bad shit as a result of being in the wrong dimension, but here Henry sees he's also a generator, an active participant in the chaos, carnage, and vengeance. That same ominous sound tick 
makes its swishing mark each time Dr. Henry's eyes swivel between targets and gory hell erupts. They're quickly all dead or escaped, and upstairs, the police department is a mass grave. It's the garish apex of a string of violence that began so small when Dr. H influenced a mouse to kill itself. Standing over the dying Willie, Dr. H levels a pistol at Henry and forces him, forest word, now violently desperate to get back to the world where his love had probably just gotten pregnant when he vanished. The town is awash in sirens, explosions, and smoke, echoing the total destruction at the end of Needful Things, dubbed the last Castle Rock story. Matthew's warning that blood will run in the streets until he is back in a cage wasn't the exaggeration it seemed. In the woods, Henry's flashback settles the great mystery of his life. To protect his mom, yes, he pushed his father to his near death. Based on the strange swarming birds, the sparrows are flying again, the immediate sonic schisma blast above... After the shove and the sudden camera cut, we can reasonably assume that's the moment he was transported from the other 1991. Then it's time for the Henry's first physical touch, a tackle in the woods followed by that familiar earthly grumble and the most startling moment of the series. Why Dr. Henry's face flashes the visage of a decrepit Game of Thrones white are yours for the pondering. You could even argue, while trusting Dr. H's story, Henry that Henry imagined it, needing to finally mark his enigma as a boogeyman. Maybe in being an evil magnet, Dr. H absorbed the town's ancient foulness and was contorted inside by it. Bear in mind both Henrys had lived 27 years more than their faces show, already confirming that there's more than physically meets the eye. Maybe something turned you into a monster, or maybe you were one all along. It doesn't matter, Henry says in his one year later narration. You are here now. This is who you are. This is where you live. This is where you're from. Truth doesn't change, it's just truth, pure, is how Henry opens that kind of happily ever after monologue. But justice, well, that looks different depending on what side of that invisible line you're on. In the premiere, and this episode's previously on real, Henry spoke to the jury deciding a woman's fate. I had to kill someone, I'd need it etched in gold and signed by God himself, so I ask you, how much doubt are you folks comfortable with? Now he's almost entirely convinced Dr. H is a deceptive creature from hell, but it's irrelevant, irrelevant, irrelevant. It's not, it's justice, not surety, and that makes him re-quarantine his counterpart below the town so he's capable of crippling. The jailhouse violence made up Henry's mind. This guy might not have deserved Lacey's punishment, but in his quest to build a monument to everyone who helped put me in that cage, he damned himself. And it, it didn't help. It was Dr. H's dad who held young Henry in cruel captivity. Sons must sometimes pay for their father's sins. Henry served 27 years immediately after trying to kill his father, no matter how innocent Dr. Henry was when Lacey caught him. He's done enough in a few days to warrant another stretch alone in the dark. Henry was actually kind of responsible for both Matthew's deaths, if his touch-slash-proximity is what caused his captor to commit suicide, a la Lacey. I know you still have doubts, Henry, Dr. H says inside the defunct Shawshank. How long are we going to do this? Henry, dunno. Dr. H, after a while you forget which side of the bar is you're on. That's what Warden Lacey used to say. Look how things turned out for him. A life of secrecy and doubt, ending in madness, depression, or both. It feels like he's setting up for a big jokerish laugh to fuel our nightmares, but instead, we pan slowly across the bars in the gloom and get a subtle, lonely smile. Like Skarsgård's other king character, Pennywise, he had a good feast after 27 years, and his damnation is complete. Maybe he'll be back in another 27. We go out on Dusty Springfield singing 24 Hours from Tulsa, a song Henry ID'd way back in the pilot as his first memory, the one playing in Pangborn's truck when he found Henry 
and when they went to exhume Matthew. Dearest darling, I had to write to say that I won't be home anymore because something happened to me while I was driving home and I'm not the same anymore. Wendell. After being blitzed with the schisma for the first time and getting off the bus in Salem's lot, Henry's son made a beeline towards the sound. He found the RV, a dead Odin, and a dazed Willie, but made it out safe. At Henry's request, Molly brought the boy back to his mother in Boston. Less than a minute after Dr. H's monster's transformation moment, we're spending Christmas in 2019 with, the, um, with Wendell and Henry at the Deaver homestead. It's sweet seeing them together and knowing that they managed to come through the events of the fall with their frayed bond not broken but cemented. It's a bit unfortunate they're doing this in the cursed town rather than, say, Boston or any place on earth except Derry. But as Henry narrates, some never leave, no matter how they try. Most of us are trapped for a reason. Molly. At Henry's jail jailhouse request, Molly whisks Wendell away from Castle Rock and then herself. She winds up in Florida, the same place Alan and Ruth fled for peace in Dr. H's world and already has Molly Strand and Associates ads on TV heralding her as the number one new agent in the Keys. Farewell, live like a king signs, and hello, redemptive, my goal is to help people stay in their own neighborhood mission statement. She likes visiting her grandmother at a house that channels Big Pink, the protagonist's Florida home in Duma Key. Miles really seems to like the one, look, seemed like the one who was going to turn Castle Rock around to beat the odds and get a gazebo and a gastro pub on the map. It's sad to see her submit, have a non-goodbye with Henry in an interrogation room, and finish up by doing more favors for the Deavers. Killed Matthew, helped Ruth, saved Henry as a boy and an adult, brought Wendell to safety. Wow. But Molly just learned of another life, one where she died in the woods but enjoyed years of a thriving existence beforehand. What was I like over there, she asked Henry. The simple answer, happier. So she went for it. As for Ruth, Molly finds Henry's mom poised to jump off a bridge again, racked by guilt over murdering her true love. But he's also alive other times, Ruth says. Just zigs and zags, forks in the river, always changing, always the same. Molly sees fit to tell a time walker, one last shout out to the total brilliance that was episode 7, that she and Ellen also once led a happier life. One of those other times you left Matthew, you went away. You already had a bag packed, Molly says. And though Dr. H's timeline isn't a place she can hop to, Ruth learning she did have the courage somewhere inside that she did care about her son's safety more than anything hopefully makes her few months, final months, easier. It's weak that she dies off screen and isn't spoken about in the epilogue, but with all her finale scenes riddled with sorrow, it's a type of a happy ending. Alan. At rest next to Ruth, with his novel-based heroics against Leland Gaunt and George Stark could have been brought to the table for some help facing the supernatural, or that we could have seen him in Dr. Henry's world, but alas, he's dead. And in his experience, the dead aren't particular. Okay. And then we have one last great constant reader, Easter Egg. After a few seconds of credits, we get Jackie Torrance in the Mellow Tiger tapping away in a laptop adorned with a sticker for King's Bangor radio station, WKIT, Relieving, reliving the night she perfectly channeled her murderous uncle with a flowery prose like, I heard the pop of a skull giving up its secrets, felt the root and stem of a cleft blade stopping the brain. Dean Merrill resurfaces to ask, what's it like, a horror or whatever? He pokes fun at the amazing title, Overlooked. Backstory, she explains. You know, ancient history, it's family history. I'm actually headed out west on a research trip next month. Best place to finish a book is where it started. I read that somewhere. 
It's the last impeccable shining reference in a season jam-packed with them. Its sequel, Dr. Sleep, features a cross-country journey from New England to the Colorado site of the Burned Down Overlook Hotel for a climactic showdown. Okay, guys, I want to thank Zach Dion for all of the recaps, um, for getting me to a point where I can give my thoughts on these episodes. Um, so here we go. Here are um, my thoughts on uh, Castle Rock, episode 10. So as Zach had said, the uh, recap begins with <clears throat> Henry discussing reasonable doubt with the jury. And... Um, this will explain his decisions and the decision made around the examination of the kid throughout this entire journey um, from Warden Lacey to Alan and ultimately to Henry himself. These are people that couldn't quite pull the trigger, quite literally, when it came to the kid. They all believed that he was evil, but they didn't believe enough. They didn't, they heard the voice of God or at least Warden Lacey heard the voice of God. Um, Alan, who had experienced supernatural activity before, um, was in a prime position to believe this. Um, of course, all of this reference is, is happening um, off screen. So we don't know. There was a comment, I mean, there was a Easter egg about Leland Gaunt um, for eagle-eyed viewers, but it's not as if it was overtly mentioned that he had um, fought a supernatural trickster figure before. But what's interesting here is what this show winds up doing. And in the end, right here, in the very beginning of the end, it harkens back to when we first meet Henry Deaver as a lawyer um, who is defending the concept of reasonable doubt. And what uh, Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason have done in this conclusion, they show us that all 10 episodes really have been one long trial with this kid um, on the witness stand or the, the kid on trial. And it's up to us to determine whether or not he is innocent or guilty if we are going to sentence him um, through our own judgment. Um, and it, it posits the question of what would you do? What would you do if you were Henry? What would you do if you were Warren Lacey? What would you do if you were Alan Pangborn? Given all of the events that you are a part of throughout this show. Can you, at the end of the day, convince yourself that yes, this kid actually is a supernatural figure of malicious intent, okay? If you believe that, do you believe strongly enough that you can kill him? Or is there enough reasonable doubt in his story that he is simply a victim from another world that doesn't mean to cause the chaos that surrounds him, that he is simply a victim. Um, so if you can't deny the lingering questions, then that's reasonable doubt, and therefore it leads to the conclusion of this show that Henry is now the new Warren Lacey, who similarly could not convince himself that this creature was the devil. He was 99% sure, but that 1% was enough reasonable doubt for him to say, if I'm wrong, I don't want to take a life. Um, I'm willing to imprison uh, for the entirety of this thing's existence, which is a much harsher and more foul um, 
damnation uh, or consequence, if you think about it, for someone that doesn't age. So what's going to happen when Henry gets old or what's going to happen if Henry dies? Now that Shawshank is decrepit and run down, theoretically speaking, the kid would just rot away um, in the bowels of this abandoned prison. And that's awful. That's awful. Wouldn't it be more merciful to kill him? But that's, that is the conflict and that is the moral complexity that uh, uh, Shaw and Thomason want us uh, navigating here. So as the show, this episode begins, we get our last glimpse of Terry O'Quinn as Warden Lacey, who sets up, like I said, the central conflict for those who spend time with the kid. Do we listen to the voice of God and kill this supposedly evil creature? What do we do? If we had found ourselves in one of these stories from the Old Testament where the voice of your Lord commanded you to do something truly awful, would you go through with it? Or would you do as our characters do in this show? Would you have enough doubt to let the object of God's vengeance live? All of this seems like a cosmic experiment to see what mankind will do, and the kid seems in on it. When Lacey pulls out his gun, the kid leans through the bars, genuinely interested. Something new is happening. Is this because it's simply that uh, the Henry Deaver from another world is unsure if he's going to be delivered release from his prison through death? Or is it a supernatural entity who is curious that a decision is about to be made? Is faith enough to trump reasonable doubt? Then we start picking back up where we had left off with our characters who we hadn't seen since episode 8, with episode 9 having what could be the kid's origin story or what could be an hour-long red herring. Regardless, we turn to where we left off with an innkeeper with an axe in the head, Wendell coming back, Henry on the run, and Ruth about to jump off a bridge. Back at Molly's house, the kid, the possible Henry from another where and when, implores Molly to help our Henry get to him, asking her to have him meet him at the cemetery where lays the remains of the deceased version of himself. Again, when last week concluded, it concluded with the kid having told his story, turning to Molly and asking, do you believe me? This is the showrunners instilling reasonable doubt. Should we believe him? What if he's an unreliable narrator? Don't forget that when Molly sensed him, she sensed that something was wrong with him. And Molly seems to have a good head on her shoulders when it comes to psychic activity. So the hour-long story that we got last week was that simply his version of events because he needs to cause chaos where he goes. Molly, on her way to find Henry, instead discovers Ruth about to jump. Now, here's the thing. I was very confused. Uh, was it just me, guys? Or was Sissy Spacek speaking in more of an Irish accent than a Maine accent? In, in, in regardless of whether it's Irish or whether it's a deep Maine, like, is the accent more pronounced now than it was before. I do not recall her talking like this. I could barely understand what she was saying. And then we check in with Warden Porter, um, who turns out is going to be like the last warden of Shawshank. She is spiraling at this point. Um, she does not seem all right in the head. Um, and she discovers the soap figurine. And from there, it is just not good. And what's cool about this, guys, is that um, we are getting the last Shawshank story. Isn't that neat? We, we clearly, if um, we know what the most famous Shawshank story here is, but I, I did not expect this to be the last. 
Shawshank story. And I like that. I like that um, we got a story that reintroduced us to Shawshank that wound up closing the doors on Shawshank in a modern world in which exists um, privatized prisons. And that was something that Dustin Thomason had talked about when I had interviewed him um, back in the summer is that he and Sam were very interested to see what Shawshank would look like in this day and age of um, privatized institutions. And as we can see, uh, it does not bode well for Shawshank. Um, and I, there is a lot to uh, explore within how Shawshank is used and what occurs with the people within Shawshank prison. There's a lot uh, to be able to, to draw out of that. Then in a flashback, we finally get the truth of what happened to Matthew Deaver, who admits he's going to kill Ruth. Henry runs away, and at the edge of a cliff, while looking over, Henry takes the opportunity to push him over the edge. So it's confirmation what we had expected. Um, and though he's saving his mother in this moment, um, as Zach said in his recap, Henry winds up as he's still punished because for 27 years, of 27 years he can't really remember, he, he is punished. He is locked away. He is imprisoned. And you can say, cosmically speaking, he's being punished for um, his sins of killing his father. The state police having picked up Wendell in the woods outside the RV where the body of Odin Branch was found with Willie in custody. But the police, hearing that Henry had an argument with the deceased man, automatically jumps to conclusions despite the fact that we know that the murder is no doubt Willie who stabbed Odin in the eye before Odin could stab out Willie's eardrums to hear the schisma. And what better person to pin it on than Henry Deaver? And the fact that Henry is black continues to add extra tension because when talking about reasonable doubt, we know that he will not be granted reasonable doubt in all of this. We know that the police have their minds made up and the case against him will be too much for him to argue his way out of. His defeat when talking on the phone, saying that he'll be staying here a while, is heartbreaking because he knows where his future is heading. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The warden stops by Molly's and pays her a visit. And she understands that Warden Lacey was right, mumbling to herself, passing Molly the soap carving before walking into the street where she's run down by the penitentiary bus, yet another correctional figure undone by the system in which she worked. Henry is brought to his cell after speaking with Molly. He begins to deal with his sad reality while the kid, standing at the grave of the deceased child of Matthew and Ruth, is suddenly surrounded by police and helicopters, having been tipped off by Henry and Molly. Is this a sad betrayal for the kid, or is this all part of his plan to wind up in Hen next to Henry in jail? The two Henrys face off in respective cages, where the kid says, If I stay, things will get worse. People will die. I can't stop it. Now, is he simply the victim of another world who is telling the truth? Or is this a supernatural trickster who is stating the case of why he should be killed, as I mentioned earlier, in this cosmic experiment of whether or not he should be killed or jailed? When the kid speaks of Bible verses and the truth of what could have happened with Ruth on the other side, is this just a trickster telling our Henry what he wants to hear? And all of Henry's memories, who is to say that these just aren't fabrications and figments that he is picking up um, here and there that are implanted in there um, because he never quite remembers. And if he did finally remember, that would sort of um, indicate 
and come down on one side, but in a show that didn't just examine the concept of reasonable doubt, but explored the faulty nature of memory with Ruth playing so large a part, aren't we supposed to take that and say, okay, if, memory, if Henry does have memories, shouldn't we question that? Especially seeing as how some of the same tests that he took for his hearing were the exact same tests that, um, oh, am I getting that confused? Well, I'm going to say it anyway because it could be the kid, but it could. There was a sequence of events earlier in the season in which uh, Henry, the kid, and Ruth all take um, certain tests. Okay. Um, the tests that uh, Henry and the kid take are very similar, but the fact that they are in close proximity to the time when Ruth is taking tests, it just it is a it is a link um, among the tests. So it's linking the reasonable doubt story of uh, Henry and the kids uh, the kids claim to be from another world, and uh, it's linking that to. Ruth's dementia um, sliding into Alzheimer's disease, um, where memories are not something that they can be counted on. So if Henry has memories, that isn't necessarily a sure thing that we can count on them. Speaking of Ruth, we get our last glimpse of her unceremoniously as Jackie of all trades, who just shows up here and there without any rhyme or reason, puts her to bed. She finds the queen remembers young Alan and her reunion with returning Alan, and she closes her eyes, and that's all she wrote. Back in the prison, the two Henrys are put in the same cell and allow for a space for the prisoners. Again, is this all part of the kid's master plan? Placing the soap carving in Warden Porter's house, creating a conduit to kill herself at the exact moment the bus is leaving, which would then cause the prisoners to have to be holed up in the jail cell, which would lead to the diversion needed for Henry and the kid to escape into the woods, sounds like the master plan of a supervillain. This is a harrowing sequence, and Henry responds as any of us would, horrified, terrified, out of his element, curled up in a corner. Again, should we trust this kid? His rampage was not accidental. This was not the result of bad luck. He made it happen. Just watch his eyes. And as Castle Rock devolves into hell on earth, the kid takes Henry through the woods. The sparrows fly overhead. As current Henry is pushed through the woods with a supposed deaver with a gun, we get the final flashback as young Henry is pursued by another deaver with a gun, culminating with the great visual of the flock of sparrows undulating in the sky above the cliff from which Matthew will soon be pushed. Current day, Henry gets the gun from the kid, and right before it cuts to black, we get another wrinkle in the story, what appears to be the kid's true face, that of a monster, and then immediately cuts to black, and then where you think that there's going to be some showdown or some resolution in another world, no. It's one year later where things seem happy, and you start to wonder, okay, is this happiness in another world? Or is this occurring within ours? And then as it unfolds, you realize that, yes, this is occurring in the world that we had started with, with Henry having survived the events of um, what had occurred one year ago in the woods. Um, and he is now the new Warden Lacey, keeping what he believes is a malignant force um, locked in the bowels of Shawshank Penitentiary. And... Uh, it leads to um, a conversation that I've been talking about, about 
reasonable doubt and making your own judgment. So let's tie up some loose threads here. First of all, Molly gets away, okay, without saying goodbye to Henry. Again, um, if I could have a, if I were to lob some criticism at this show, I don't buy the relationship between Henry and Ruth, or Henry and Molly, and their their lack of goodbye or no resolution kind of adds to that to me. Um, Henry visits Ruth's graveside, and again, I, I just feel with, sorry guys, if you hear my dog barking in the background, I feel that with um, Sissy Spacek playing such an important role and being the star of the breakout episode of episode seven, to have her just kind of go away is a disservice to Sissy Spacek's role in all of this. And, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. And then we have Henry being the new Lacey. The kid is left alone in the abandoned Shawshank with nothing but a smile on his face. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, it's subtle at the end. Um, does that mean that he, he smiles knowing that... Is this just the smile of a prisoner who knows that his jailer will suffer the same fate as Lacey? That, you know, if he's going to be stuck down here, that he at least you know, will have some justice for himself and his wife and child will never see him again because of these horrible people in this world when he's just trying to get back home. So you know what? Like, I'll wait this out and you go about your life, man, but it's going to come crashing down on you some point. Is it that? Or is it a smile of a supernatural entity that is going to bide its time and see if, again, this jailer has the guts to um, pull a trigger or if this jailer will take his own life like the previous ones um, I, I don't know I mean I, I'm not quite sure what uh, what that smile means but I love the fact that there was a smile it is the spinning top of Stephen King <laughs> adaptations, I guess. And I think that's something that people could debate for a long time. And I hope that they do debate because I think that there is a lot to really pull out of this because, like I said, Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason are not just telling a story of a supernatural figure in a small town. They are discussing reasonable doubt because, keep in mind, remember that Stephen King books are, are never what the general audience thinks they are, right? So I, you know, Salem's Lot isn't just about vampires. It's about the the, the ruination of um, the identity of small town through a larger world encroaching upon it, right? The, the, the vampires are just a metaphor at that point. Um, the Shining isn't just about a haunted hotel, right? It's a great setting. It's a great location. It's about the complete destruction of a family when one member of that family's illness overcomes the strength of that family itself. When you turn away from your family and you turn inward into selfishness. Um, Christine isn't just about a an evil car. It is about um, obsession. It is about young love. It is about uh, being a teenager. Cujo is about rage. It is about anger. It's about addiction, right? Uh, and misery isn't just about a, a, a trapped um, writer. 
um, in a torture porn scenario. It is about fandom and it is about addiction. Again, of course, you can apply addiction to a number of his books, but um, that's what makes Stephen King's uh, stories resonate throughout the years because it, it of course i mean there's another one it isn't just about an evil clown it is about um that feeling of being a child when you're on the precipice of becoming adult and you are still blessed with that imaginative that imagination wonder and magic of childhood but there is a a, a true fear of what the next step will be will, will bring and you see adults and they're strangers and they're scary and to know that you will one day be them for all of their faults and their weaknesses and their failings and the, their, their 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 trappings that there's an inevitability to that that the magic that you currently have cannot last um that's what this book is about. And it's not just about an evil clown. And uh, so what Sam Shaw and Dustin Thomason did so well here is that they understand that about King's works, that there is a metaphor at play. And so, like I said at the beginning of this episode, they, they turned every episode into a different case for or against this kid. Um, and at the end of the day, it is up to you to determine whether or not you would find yourself in the same position as a Henry or Warden Lacey or an Alan Pangborn or if you would be a bit more swift with your vengeance or your judgment or if you would listen to um, the, the voice that you hear. Because on one hand, the, the only other person in, in this show that was uh, swift or was going to be that extreme with the judgment was Matthew Deaver. And clearly that's not someone that you want to emulate. So it, it's not as if they're pointing you in a right direction, but they are presenting you with all these different arguments and allowing you to be able to, to piece together. Um, or I should say they're, they're, putting, they're laying out all the different points that you can make and allowing you to, to build your argument one way or another. And I think that that's fantastic to explore the concept of reasonable doubt um, and explore what um, the prison system is um, through this parable, right, um, that plays out in, uh, in these 10 episodes in Stephen King's most famous uh, fictionalized town. So one thing that's I just want to say that this is cool, that I love, um, I love the fact that there is an abandoned prison with a literal ghost haunting it at this point. I think that, that is such a great way to leave this show, and it opens up and it, it, it continues the mythology of Castle Rock. And I love the idea of you know Jackie Torrance one day telling this story, and not that she would know about... Uh, about the kid, but of course people are going to be sneaking into it, into Castle Rock, and maybe they'll hear someone calling for them, or maybe they will um, get dreams of the place or something, something, you know? I mean, I think that the legend will start to grow. And the music, by the way, the music has been so good, and the sound design throughout all of these episodes, and it is so cinematic when we have an aerial shot of the, the abandoned Shawshank as Henry is making his way. Um, Oh, it sounds and looks so good. Okay, there's a couple things. Um, there's some unresolution here. Um, what was up with the gauzy-faced evil priest ghost, Matthew? What was that all about? 
Um, the fact that this doesn't culminate in anything, does this just mean that Molly isn't really psychic um, and just insane? You know, that this is just a manifestation of her guilt? I I'm not sure what that was. I don't know if there's more to it. I don't know if that is executive notes coming down the pike saying that you need to punch up these early episodes to you know to kind of freak people out i don't know but after that second episode we don't see gauzy faced matthew except maybe one more time but that's it i don't know if it's the kid projecting this image i don't know what it is i don't know what it is but it's kind of just sits by itself outside of the main story that that never really gels with anything else um so that's that's something to chew over now let's get back to the kid and reasonable doubt here so I, I i keep jumping back and forth but i, I really want to just focus on this so here are the questions that we have is he evil or is he henry from an, another world those are the two questions you could argue that he seems to utilize his evil powers you can make the argument that he is like a virus in this world and everything that happens around him is just the body's uh antibodies right um and it's just the dissonance of this being from one world existing in a world that it should not be living in and everything that bad happens is is a result of just the fact that it's not supposed to be here or is he harnessing the these evil powers that he actually has did he purposefully murder this family um did he purposefully instill cancer in his cellmate? Did he send Zaleski over the edge, knowing that it's going to lead to his release? That's kind of a big deal. There's the riot of the prisoners. We watched his eyes. That was purposeful. So it isn't just accidental. He says that he can't control it. Yes, he can. And he did. So what is this kid? Henry argues his story um, at one point that he doesn't believe this other world cockamamie story that came off and, and basically he says that he just got the information he needed from Henry Deaver um, and all the boxes while staying at his place he's right that is a really really good point there's that smile at the end okay that there's much that you could read into it, it seems a little mischievous okay it's not a sad smile of someone that is resigned to his fate there's a maliciousness there um, Molly had earlier said that something was wrong with him, okay? And there's this hunchback, which is never addressed, okay? Now, is that from leaning against a narrow cage for 27 years, or is it an indication of evil, like Richard III, okay? In classical literature, physical impairment was a visual cue of malicious intent. Is that the case here? Or that evil zombie face at the end, is this Henry forcing himself to give himself uh, some sort of proof that need you know for, for him to, to to do what he needs to to be done you know um or is this in this moment the thing's true face showing through um and then there's the soap figure at the wardens which isn't that 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 kind of points to the fact that there's he, he might not be a nice guy okay um that this figurine definitely uh channeled his will um, upon the warden causing her to die not just to die but allowing for a series of events to take place which allowed him to um, get next to Henry to get with Henry to create a diversion large enough so that the two of them could escape without any police trying to find them 
so he could take him to the woods and what? To prove a point? To get back to his world? Or whatever world he says he's from? Who knows? Okay, guys, but regardless of whether you want to make the argument that he is, like he says, a Henry from another world, or if he is something else, um, Dustin Thomason and Sam Shaw did a hell of a job getting us there. Okay, guys, Ka is a wheel. So what's great about this episode is we see some repetition of things that have occurred before in the past. Ruth on the bridge again. Henry in the snowy woods again. Um, you know, both Henry, young Henry and old Henry are in the woods against their will. Police officers getting shot. Okay, we saw this before and it's brutal again. Um, we see a suicidal warden. We saw the king imprisoned or the kid imprisoned. So we see these things again and again and again. And then we have Easter eggs. Uh, Terry O'Quinn, who played John Locke in Lost, and spoiler alert for Lost, but John Locke was a character in a wheelchair, so to have the actor playing John Locke, who famously was in a wheelchair, say something about a man in a wheelchair sounds right, that's definitely an Easter egg. Another one is Harmony Hill, which was the cemetery from Salem's Lot, which has been repurposed to uh, Castle Rock here. Three, the sparrows are flying again. Um, the sparrows that we see in the air as psychopomps, uh, which are, um, they're the harbingers of supernatural activity to come, of shepherding souls from one realm to the next, which makes totally sense that we're seeing them around the area of what we could call a thinny. Um, we have evil totems. Now you could argue that the soap carving Giving to the warden functions similarly to the totems in Desperation, which were conduits of a larger evil, in that case, Tack, in this case, possibly Evil Henry. Um, she seemed to unravel quicker when she picked up that soap, soap carving. Did it channel his evil powers and cause her to kill herself? Uh, also, the cane used by Andre Linoge in Storm of the Century had similar abilities. The Shining. Um, a murderous father stalks his son through the snow, and the son escapes by walking backwards through the snow prints. It's clearly a shout-out to the Stanley Kubrick version. Wilma Jerzyk, this was nice, this cracked me up, and it's evidence that we're taking place in another when and where than the Castle Rock that we read about in the events of um, Needful Things. Uh, Wilma Jerzyk, Henry is representing a resident of Castle Rock who is facing off against Wilma Jerzyk in court, a mean woman you definitely do not want to go, go up against. Then we have the Keys, um, which is where Molly uh, relocates, and um, we saw that most famously in Duma Key. And then lastly, it's less of a it's less of an Easter egg, but it is interesting to consider the fact that Henry Deaver from Another World, the kid, basically is playing someone that you could describe as an ageless stranger. I don't know if that was purposeful. I don't know. But when I thought to myself, oh shit, he's an ageless stranger that... Uh, that made me smile. So for fans of the Dark Tower, I think that you know what I'm talking about. And then lastly, we have our mid-credit stinger in which Jackie is leaning heavily into her fangirl um, nature and she is writing a book called Overlooked, which is hilarious, and talks about going west. So is this 
the showrunners pointing us in the direction of what season two is going to be, it would kind of make sense. I mean, why do you cast Jane Levy and uh, subject her to a almost comedic relief plot line, right? Um, especially when the subject matter revolving her is about The Shining, which is one of the 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 would be on the Mount Rushmore of Stephen King stories, right? So when she says she's going west, is she going west to Colorado um, to the Overlook? Are we going to get a story set in the Overlook for season two? You know, I mean, from a business standpoint, that's an example of Shaw and Thomason striking while the iron is hot because currently casting and soon to be filming is Dr. Sleep. So there's going to be a lot of conversation around Dr. Sleep, and it wouldn't be unwise for them to um, steal a little bit of that thunder for themselves and and put themselves in that conversation. So to have two quasi-sequels to The Shining occurring at the same time, one on the big screen and one on the small screen, that is uh, that would be pretty neat. And or um, if this is just you know a fun little ending and and the the next season kind of does its own thing how how funny would it be if uh mike flanagan casts jane levy in uh dr sleep in a cameo role uh to show up at the climactic end spoiler alert for dr sleep as danny and abra are facing off against the true lot and jackie after having had an off-screen adventure trying to get to the overlook um shows up there and sees the true knot battling you know her uh what would that be her cousin would that be her cousin um so she would also be abra's spoiler alert uncle or aunt right i think that's how that would work out so that that would be just kind of that would be neat um completely unneeded but it would be neat to have this this link guys so here's the deal um castle rock is over i uh did not know what to expect with castle rock um, when I sat down to tune in, I know that what I had wanted, I wanted it to be good. I wanted it to, you know, feel like a Stephen King uh, story. And I'll say this: I don't think that it truly felt like a Stephen King story, and that's not a knock, um, because it did its own thing in a familiar setting that was first originated by Stephen King, and that was great. But it, it really was allowed to be its own thing. But I think that what they got right at the core of it. Um, was the fact that it was there was a metaphor at play and you cared about the characters. And because they did that, that felt like a Stephen King story. So there were incredible moments of television within these 10 hours. I liked the first couple episodes, but when um, we got to the episode where Zaleski is losing his mind to crying by Roy Orbison, that is... That is an all-time great sequence of television um, where my, I had to pick up my jaw from the floor. Episode 7, of course, um, is going to go down as one of the greatest episodes of television history. The conversation uh, written by Mark Bernardin um, in the like the 12-something minute long conversation between uh, Henry in the Woods and Odin, who is signing the entire time about schisma and psychoacoustics, is so um, batshit that I loved it. 
um, episode nine, where we get other where's and when's, um, is just a joy for a uh, Stephen King fan who has you know long loved the the concept of of other worlds, and I think that this was a great chewy. Um, ambiguous conclusion to a show that I really, really enjoyed and recommend. Um, so, uh, Dustin Thomason and Sam Shaw, congratulations, guys! You did good. Um, this was a such a great ride, and you stuck the landing. I'm very excited for season two, and I imagine that when season two hits, um, it's going to hit um, like gangbusters. So, again. Um, this was great. And if you've only been listening to my recaps, uh, go back and, and watch this show. And what's great about this show is that now you can watch it knowing what you know and try and make your argument from the first episode all the way all the way on. So um, here's the deal with the Stephen King cast going forward. Um, my life has gotten really, really busy. Um, I have a side job that is taking up a lot of my time when I get out of work on top of um, being a husband and a father. And uh, so I am going to slow down again. Sorry, guys, with uh, the Stephen King cast. When I do return um, in uh, maybe a month, okay, maybe less than, um, I'll pick up uh, where I've wanted to... uh, do for a while, which is review Lock and Key by Joe Hill. So I'm very, very excited. So let's see, it's it's mid-September right now. So if I start the Lock and Key stuff, that actually would be a good like Halloween-ish uh, series of podcast episodes. So I'll do that. And um, unless um, I get in touch with... Uh, with some people about um, Castle Rock, and then we, we might have a follow-up um, conversation interview about uh, about Castle Rock. I know that Dustin Thomason and I had, had talked about doing a follow-up to the interview uh, and conversation that I had had with him earlier in the summer, and I think that, um, you know, if, if he's open for it, I'm totally open for it. So um, so if that happens, then, then that will happen whenever it's convenient for him. So um, I just want to let you know, Keep this in your feeds. When the next episode comes, it comes. It might be next week. It might be a couple weeks. It might not be until October. It might be lock and key. Um, it might be an interview with Dustin Thomason um, if everything goes well. So, guys, thank you so much for um, my reviews of Castle Rock. Thank you so much, as always, for all the support around the Stephen King cast. If you have um, any time on your hands, feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Um, and any thoughts that you have on Castle Rock, if you like the ending, didn't like the ending, where you fall on the kid being an evil entity um, or a victim from another world, write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, guys, so may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M O O N spells Stephen Kingcast. Oh,